All right, church, we come now to the preaching of the Word of God. This is where God addresses us as His people through His Word. And He's faithful to do this every week. And so I want to invite you to turn this morning to Matthew chapter 24. And we're going to call upon the name of the Lord together. We're going to ask for God's help today. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you in Jesus' name. Lord, we come remembering today, remembering the gospel, trusting in the finished work of Christ. And Lord, we thank you for this glorious gospel through which we can approach you as our Father in heaven. And that's what we do now as your church, Lord. We come to you as Father and we ask for the things that are good for our soul. Lord, we ask to be encouraged today. Lord, we ask to be reminded of the things, the beautiful things of Jesus Christ, the glory of Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would revive us today. And specifically, Lord, we ask that you would increase our joy, our joy in the gospel, our joy in the things above, our joy in an eternity before us through the finished work of of Jesus. Lord, we pray that you would increase it and that you would be glorified in the joy of this church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's begin our time this morning by reading God's Word together. We're going to be in Matthew 24 again, the Olivet Discourse. This is our third week in this chapter. And we're going to back up a little bit. And read from verse 22 through verse 35 this morning. Let's read God's word together. Verse 22. These are the words of Jesus. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. 
from the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. This is God's word to Grace Community Church this morning. Now, as we dig into this passage, I want you to be aware that there are attacks on the Christian gospel, on the very foundations of our faith that have been launched against our Lord Jesus and specifically against this passage that we read together this morning. Ninety years ago, a British philosopher named Bertrand Russell attacked the divinity of Jesus in a famous speech that was later published as a book titled, Why I Am Not a Christian. And in this book, in this book Russell supposedly finds within the Gospels reasons to doubt the wisdom of Jesus and the divinity of Jesus Christ. Here's what he says. I am concerned with Christ as he appears in the Gospels. Taking the Gospel narratives as they stand, one finds some things in them that do not seem to be very wise. And so we have a charge made against the Lord Jesus of the Gospels. Now, relevant to our study of Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, these blemishes are supposedly found in Matthew 24. He asserts that Jesus taught that the second coming would, would occur in clouds of glory before the death of all the people who were living at the time of Jesus. And so what I want you to understand is Russell takes his aim at verse 34 that we just read together, and he asserts that Jesus Christ predicted that he would come back in clouds of glory in the first generation, and his obvious conclusion was this didn't happen. Okay? And he points to this reality as an example of the Gospels as they stand present uh, Jesus to us that's not very wise. He doesn't know everything and therefore he's not divine. He's not the Christ. This is the charge. Now, as Christians, I want us to know that there is something going on here. He's 100% wrong, but there's one little piece of this that I want you to understand that is right. And it's this right here. We are in a zero-sum game as followers of Jesus Christ. It really is uh, a zero-sum game. It's all or nothing. Okay? And I want you to understand, that way of thinking is right. Okay? It is not good enough as Christians if we prove that Jesus was right 99 times out of 100. Okay? 
So it is right that if he was wrong one time, one time, if he made one mistake, if he committed one sin, it is right to conclude that Jesus was not the Messiah and is not divine. That's the only thing Russell gets right in this assertion. Other than that, he's absolutely wrong. Okay, And so I want us to start this morning with this question. This is the question I want us to take up together from verse 34. Is did Jesus make a false prophecy? Okay, let's read verse 34 again. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. You call Jesus Master and Lord, and so do I. We just worshiped him. Did he make a false prophecy in verse 34? Now the obvious answer to that question, okay, the obvious answer to that question is no, absolutely he did not prophesy falsely. The church has asserted this for thousands of years. Okay? Jesus didn't make a false prophecy ever in his life, and it's not one in verse 34. But here's what I want you to understand is there are three different ways of explaining the no, Jesus didn't make a false prophecy in verse 34. And this takes us back to the three different ways of reading the Olivet Discourse these three views within the church that we've been dis discussing the past three weeks now. And if you aren't aware with those, I'll just refer you back to the podcast the previous two weeks. And so we'll start this morning with the futurist position. This is the futurist answer to that question. Did Jesus make a false prophecy? And the futurist position on the Olivet Discourse says this. No, Jesus didn't get it wrong. Because the word generation in verse 34 means something different than it appears to me. Okay, that's the futurist answer to this charge. Okay, the futurist reading appeals that the word generation can mean not only those who were alive when Jesus was speaking in those first 40 years or so after Jesus spoke this, it can also refer to a race or an ethnicity. And the futurists understand Jesus to be saying this specifically about the Jewish people that this generation, this ethnicity, this race, the Jews won't be, a, be uh, they won't go out of existence. They'll still be around before the coming of the Son of Man. Other futurists appeal to some other meaning of generation, not the generation that's alive when Jesus is speaking. But the final generation that's alive when Jesus returns. Again, this is the futurist understanding of the Olivet Discourse. Okay? The weakness of this understanding is that the most natural reading and understanding of the word this generation is exactly what it appears to be. Those alive when Jesus was speaking. Okay? So I want you to feel the tension there. It, it does seem like Jesus is prophesying that something will come to pass within that first generation. I'll refer you back to Matthew 23. And Jesus uses this generation in exactly this way. In Matthew 23, verse 35, Jesus says this. So that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel. To the blood of Zechariah, 
whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Listen, Jesus says, truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. This generation. So almost certainly, Jesus is referring to those who are alive and hearing the words that he's speaking. So this is the futurist understanding of the Olivet Discourse. Let's go next to the preterist understanding, the preterist position. And the answer of the preterist goes like this. No, Jesus didn't get it wrong in verse 34 because Jesus did return. He did come in that first generation. And so the answer to both is no. The only Christian answer is no, he didn't get it wrong. But the explanation is different. The preterists say Jesus did return. Jesus did come back in the first generation. We've been uh, unpacking this for two weeks now. That the preterist understanding of the coming of Christ that is prophesied in Matthew 24 is not the visible, physical, universal second coming of Jesus at the end of time. But a spiritual coming in judgment of Jesus upon the Jews that was fulfilled in 70 A.D. And so the preterists understand that Jesus did come back. And many point to Matthew 10 as an example of this coming. Matthew 10 verse 23 says this. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you. You will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Okay? This is a coming of Jesus that's prior to the final coming of Jesus. This is the preterist understanding. Now, I think this view is probably the newest view to most of us in this room because we grew up, most of us, in, in, in that futurist background. Everything's out in front of us, okay? And one of the shocking things about this view, and perhaps the most shocking thing, is that there are brothers and sisters uh, and faithful pastors and teachers who understand the cosmic language in the Olivet Discourse to have been fulfilled in 70 AD. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, look, re remember what Jesus says. In verses 29 through 31, he says when he comes, what does he say? Verse 29, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the heavens. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. They'll see the sign of the Son of Man. All the earth will mourn. They, the elect will be gathered from the four winds of heaven. And we're just sitting there scratching our heads saying, how in the world could that possibly be fulfilled in 70 AD? It, it, it doesn't seem to fit. Okay? Preterists understand this language, this cosmic language, to be an example of what is called prophetic hyperbole. It's a feature of... Prophetic literature uh, 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 called prophetic hyperbole. And they point to passages in the Old Testament that are presented to us with this exact same language. I'll give you one example. In Isaiah 13, verse 9, we have the destruction of Babylon prophesied by the prophet Isaiah. And listen to the language that's described. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy sinners from it. 
For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. And so this passage refers to God's judgment upon Babylon. And that was a judgment that God brought upon Babylon in history. And so the preterist argument is this. If this is the language that God uses to describe the judgment upon Babylon, okay, and it wasn't fulfilled in this literal way, then this is a perfectly fitting way for Jesus to describe his coming in judgment upon the Jews in 70 AD. This is the preterist argument. Okay? Now, um, we, 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 we talked about the strengths last week of the preterist understanding of the Olivet Discourse because there are some things in this chapter where Jesus is prophesying that something's going to happen in that first generation. Let's talk about some weaknesses today of the preterist interpretation of the coming of Jesus being fulfilled in 70 AD. Okay? In other words, I'm about to give you four reasons why the preterist understanding of the coming of Jesus is unlikely. Okay? These are weaknesses of this interpretation. Number one, the preterist appeal back to the Old Testament and the prophetic literature being framed in this way it is unclear that these passages that are referred to, such as Isaiah 13 that we just read, have actually reached their ultimate fulfillment. It's unclear that Isaiah 13 has been ultimately fulfilled. In other words, one of the ways that God's word works is something called typology. That yes, God did judge the Babylonians. But that's also a glimpse and a shadow of God's judgment that's going to fall in the final day. Okay? And so many believe that these Old Testament prophecies are types of the final judgment. And therefore they're not ultimately fulfilled. Even those Old Testament prophecies. Which would make that language not so much prophetic hyperbole. But a glimpse of the coming judgment. That's number one. Number two. Number two. Reason that the preterist understanding is unlikely is that this same cosmic language, trumpets, angels, sun going out, moon going out, that's the same descriptions, these are how the apostles describe in other New Testament passages the final coming of Jesus Christ. Let's turn over to Matthew 25. Give you an example of this in the very next chapter. Matthew 25 verse 31 says this. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And then what follows in that passage is the final judgment. Another example of this is in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Beginning in verse 15, Paul says this. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord 
that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Listen closely. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, who will be caught together with them, will be caught together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Obviously a reference to the the final coming, the second coming of Jesus, because it just says we're going to be raised when he comes. But the same language is there. Angels, trumpets, elect gathered to meet the Lord in the air. And so the argument runs like this. If the rest of the New Testament uses this language to describe the final coming of Jesus, then the most natural way to read this language in the Olivet Discourse is it's the same thing. It's not a separate thing. It's the same thing. Jesus is prophesying to come to return. Number three. Jesus told us that his coming would be visible and public, not invisible and geographically limited. Okay? And so understand, you know, if he just comes in judgment on 70 AD, that's just to Jerusalem in a non-visible bodily way. Okay? Well, what does Jesus say in Matthew 24 about his coming? Turn back with me to verse verses 22 through verse 27. And I want you to understand the argument. Beginning in verse 23, he begins to give that same warning that's going to stretch across the whole inter-advent period about false Jesuses. Okay? And, and the warning is this. If somebody says Jesus came you know, in the secret way, don't believe it. Don't go there. Okay? And then the remedy comes... In verse 27, with the word for, he says, For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. In other words, you will not ever have to be told Jesus is here. Ever. You will never have to be worried that you're missing out on this secret appearance of Jesus. He says, don't go there. Don't believe it. It would be like standing in a lightning storm and somebody saying, hey, where's the lightning? Nobody says that because it flashes across the whole sky. He's prophesying a public, glorious, powerful, bodily return, not to Jerusalem, but to the whole earth. And it says that the whole earth will mourn. When he comes. And so it's obvious here that a 70 AD coming can't fulfill that reality of a universal, bodily, glorious appearance of Jesus Christ. Number four and most decisive, okay, is that Jesus himself did not include his return in the prophecy he gave us in verse 34. In other words, his second coming is not included in the these things 
of verse 34, when Jesus says this generation will not pass away until these things take place. And we'll ground this in two separate verses. First is in verse 36. Look at verse 36. Jesus tells us in verse 36, and I'm just going to simplify this. He didn't know when he was returning. That's what he says. He says, no one knows. And then he goes on to say, not even the son, not even the angels. Only the father knows when this day comes. So think, think about the argument here. Jesus says in verse 36, I don't know when I come. But are we supposed to, to believe in verse 34 that he said, but here's when I'll come. In other words, he's telling you himself that the timing of his return is unknown to him, hasn't been revealed to him, obviously a reference to his human nature. Okay? As the God-man, he was dependent on God for these things to be revealed to him. Right? More decisive than verse 36 is verse 33. Notice in verse 33. That this same phrase, these things, appears not only in verse 34, but also in verse 33. Jesus says this, So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Now the argument runs this way. Okay, Whatever these things mean in verse 33... They have to mean the exact same things in verse 34. It's the very next sentence. It doesn't even break thought. In other words, the these things of verse 33 are the same these things that he's prophesying will happen in the first generation of verse 34. Well, what does verse 33 tell us? It tells us clearly that the these things do not include the second coming of Jesus. You say, what do you mean? Look at what he says. These things indicate that the second coming is near. Not that the second coming has already happened. In other words, the preterist reading basically forces verse 33 to say this. When you see these things fulfilled, know that Jesus has already come. But that's not what Jesus says. When you see these things, know that he is near at the very gates. And so I think it's right for us to conclude that Jesus, when he made that prophecy of what would be fulfilled in that first generation, he did not include his second coming in that prophecy. He's prophesying that these signs that we saw powerfully last week, that those things would be fulfilled in that first generation. And what happened? Exactly what Jesus said would happen. Okay? So a wrong interpretation of what Jesus said leads to these ridiculous conclusions that Jesus wasn't right. Okay? That he made an error or, that, or the blasphemy that Jesus uh, was a false prophet, that he prophesied falsely. In verse 34. And so this is why we have argued for three weeks now for what is called the blended view 
of the Olivet Discourse, which means simply this, that Jesus is prophesying some things that are going to happen in the first generation and they're fulfilled. But at the same time, in the same breath, he's also prophesying things about the final day that haven't been fulfilled yet. Okay. He speaks of a coming judgment in the same discourse, a glorious return. Now, if you have ever studied biblical prophecy, that doesn't surprise you at all. Because one of the things that you'll find as you dig into books like Jeremiah and Isaiah and Zechariah and, and, and Revelation and prophetic literature is you'll find that men inspired by the Holy Spirit, they're given these oracles, these prophetic oracles, and they come to us. With the time frame is not always clear of, of, of which horizon is being spoken of here. And sometimes the prophets speak in such a way that the time horizons are, are stacked right on top of each other. A famous example of this is in Isaiah 7 where God gives uh, Ahaz, King Ahaz in Israel, a sign. Okay? And... and there's, there's something given to him to confirm something that, that happens in his time frame historically. Okay? But here's the thing. The apostles take that same historical word and that historical situation. And they tell us that ultimately that sign was fulfilled in our Lord Jesus Christ. Whose name was Emmanuel. Who was born of a virgin. Who is God with us. And so one of the things that you've got to learn about prophecy. Is you have these layers or horizons of fulfillment. Jesus is not doing something distinct here. He's speaking like the prophets who come before him. With the time horizon stacked on top of each other. There was a man named George Eldon Ladd. Who gives this uh, uh, example of what biblical prophecy is like. And he, his example is this. It's like standing on a mountain range. okay, And you see these mountain peaks in the horizon. These huge mountains. okay, And he says from a distance they look side by side. They look to be exactly you know, beside each other. And then he says but as you approach those mountains. Or, or imagine that you're even above them. You can begin to see that there's a huge you know, uh, gap uh, between these two mountain peaks. Maybe 20 miles, maybe 50 miles. In other words, the initial perspective looks like they're side by side, but the closer you get, you find out they're actually further apart than what you thought. That's how the prophets speak about the coming of Jesus. There are two comings of Christ. The first in his humiliation and the second in his glorification. So there are multiple horizons of biblical prophecy. I think this is exactly what Jesus is doing in the Olivet Discourse. And this is what the, the blended view argues. Is that Jesus did prophesy things that did come to pass exactly like he said in the first generation. But the second coming was not included in that prophecy. All right, with this multiple horizon framework in front of us, let's double back to verse 29. In verse 29, Jesus says, He will return immediately after those days. 
Okay? Immediately after those days. Now, if you were here last week, we argued for a structure of this chapter where verses 22 through 28 refer to the whole inter-advent period. That whole period of time between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. And so, with this framework, what Jesus is asserting in verse 29 is that immediately after the completion of this period, He returns. In other words, it's the very next thing on the redemptive calendar. Inter Advent period, cut short, verse 22, for the sake of the elect, He returns to gather all the elect from the four corners of the earth. And so you'll notice, if you came in with some, you know, uh, prophecy nut, prophetic itch to scratch this morning, if this is the right reading, it leaves you really disappointed for this reason. It doesn't let you date set the return of Jesus. Like, what do you mean if Jesus is saying immediately after this period I come? I want to set some timelines here. Like, I want to get some things in order. I want to set some dates here. And if that's your desire, think of how disappointed you are. Okay? Jesus himself, in verse 36, says, No one knows when he returns. He knows the sequence. He knows what happens before his return. He knows the necessary signs that must be completed. But he doesn't know the timing of it. Okay? And so what's being revealed in the Olivet Discourse is sequencing... Not timing, okay? Not timing. If you want to set a date for the return of Christ, Matthew 24 leaves you very, very disappointed. Verses 29 through 31 show us that Christ will cut this period short for the sake of the elect. He'll come back and he'll gather the elect from the four corners of the earth. The timeline of the return of Christ is hidden to us. Always will be. Deuteronomy 29, 29 is a great verse for you to memorize. It says the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. This, the timing of the return of Jesus is a secret thing. That belongs to the Lord. It is not for you to know. It's not for you to know now. It's not ever for you to know before he comes. What is revealed is the sequence here that produces a readiness in the life of a believer. In other words, the right way to read the Olivet Discourse is to understand the signs tell us that Jesus is coming... But they do not tell us when Jesus is coming. And this is exactly what verse 36 asserts. Nobody knows when he's coming. But these things confirm that he is coming even near standing at the very gates. In verse 32, Jesus tells us to understand the lesson of the fig tree. And the lesson is simple enough. Just as you see a fig tree shoot out leaves in the springtime, you conclude, oh, summer is near. And Jesus draws an example here, an analogy here, that when you see the signs of chapter 24 fulfilled, know what? 
know that Jesus is near. And he says, even standing at the gates. Now, it may not seem much like much, but that one little analogy of the fig tree can change your life. In other words, it can bring life-changing clarity to every person in this room of what you're supposed to be living for. Okay? What you're supposed to be living for. You say, what do you mean? Because these things happened, just like Jesus said, the conclusion is that Jesus is near. In other words, the fulfillment of these things clarify for every follower of Jesus and really everybody in the room what kind of age we live in. What kind of times we live in. And the way the Bible describes these times are the last days. In other words, we are being instructed by Jesus that we live in the last days. We live in the days that we are to be convinced and assured that Jesus is near, that he's standing at the very gates. The, the, these signs are to produce that readiness in the followers of Christ. Hebrews chapter 10, this is a note that the New Testament sounds often. The nearness of Jesus. Hebrews 10.37 says this, Yet a little while, and the coming one will come, and he will not delay. Just a little while, and he's coming. Just a little while, and he's coming. And we live in a world that will delude that over and over again. A deceptive age that lures us away from the nearness of Jesus, the soon coming of Jesus. But the last thing that Jesus tells us in the New Testament are these words. Surely I am coming quickly, Jesus says. I am coming quickly. And wisdom hears those words and orders your whole life in such a way that you live with a readiness to stand before your God. In other words, the purpose of eschatology, Matthew 24, Isaiah, Daniel, Revelation, is not so that you can get these cute timelines in order and this happens, and this happens, and this happens. The purpose is to change the way that you live. This has been revealed beforehand so that we would be awake, sober-minded, ready to see our God Christians. And that's exactly what he goes into in the Olivet Discourse. What happens right after this? Parables. That exhort the people of God to stay awake, to keep your lamps trimmed, to keep your garments on, to stay ready to see the Lord Jesus. That's what it looks like to really get prophecy, is it changes the way that you live right now in expectation that this day is nearer than you think it is. And so I want to exhort some believers in the room this morning, brothers and sisters, live with conviction. Don't you want this? That you're not a sleepy Christian, 
or a lukewarm Christian piddling around with the heavenly things, with the heavenly inheritance, just kind of piddling around with it. But you're all in. You love Jesus. You're following him in this world. And you're fully assured that it can happen at any moment that you can stand before your Lord and you want to please him. You want to order your life in such a way that it brings him honor and glory and praise. I want to exhort you to that this morning. Just a little while, the Bible says, just a little while. It means it's sooner than you think it's going to be. Just a little while. And his glorious salvation is going to be revealed. We, the promise of the gospel is there's coming a day when we will see Jesus Christ face to face. We will see him. We will be made like him. And wisdom, the, the, the wise, hear God's word. And, and, and that response is, I want to order my life in such a way. I want to live in this world in a way, in a way that will make sense on that day. And I also want to exhort this morning the unbelievers who are here. Christians aren't the only ones that are going to see Jesus. The Bible says every eye will see him. And that text that we just read from the man who cannot lie says the earth is going to mourn when they see the sign of the Son of Man. Which means that it's just like Jesus has told us. He's coming back as a Savior and as a judge. And what does wisdom do? Wisdom prepares to see your God. Wisdom orders your life in such a way you're about to stand before your maker. Jesus Christ made you. All things were made by him and all things were made for him. You better prepare to see Jesus. He's at the gates. He's nearer than you ever believed. In just a little while, you'll stand before him in judgment. And so we're all exhorted today. To ready ourselves. To wake up. Revelation 16 verse 15 says this. Behold. I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake. Keeping his garments on. That he may not go about naked. And be seen exposed. Everyone who hears the words of Jesus should prepare to meet Jesus. We live in the last days. The days that Jesus is standing at the door. Days where God's word says just a little while longer and Christ appears. What will it be like on, that, on the final day when Jesus comes? There are several things that he says in Matthew 24 that I want to highlight before we finish up this morning, number one, what should we prepare for? Number one, we should prepare for the entire creation to bear witness for the arrival of the creator. And I'm telling you, it's going to be an awesome day. When Jesus came the first time, the Bible says that he was granted a messenger a herald who went before him named John the Baptist. And his message was to prepare the way of the Lord. But look at what Jesus tells us in verse 29 through 31. What are the signs that are confirming his arrival? It's creation. 
Creation is serving as his herald. Creation is given testimony that the creator is here. It's nature's testimony that nature's maker has arrived. And what happens on that day? Sun goes out. Moon no longer gives light. Powers of the heavens are shaken. Can you imagine this awesome day? Angels appear. Trumpet blasts come. Angels go out. Gather the elect from all the earth. It's a day above all days. The day of the Lord. You should prepare for cosmic signs. You should prepare for nature's witness for the arrival of Jesus. And don't you love that it will be absolutely impossible to miss it. So much that was wrong with the eschatology that we grew up with, many of us, is this worry, man, I'm going to miss it. Jesus is going to come back, I'm going to miss it. Nobody's going to miss Jesus coming back. The earth is going to convulse. The heavens are going to be shaken. It'll be like lightning flashing from one end of the sky to the other. You won't miss this day. No one will miss this day. Every eye will see Jesus. And the Bible says that at his, at his second coming, it won't be like his first coming. The Bible says that at his first coming, there were many who dismissed him. Your king is here. It's like, so what? I don't care. The Bible says that at the second coming, it'll be different. Every eye will see him. And Philippians 2 tells us that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every created tongue will give a confession that Jesus is king. Jesus is the Christ. What an awesome day. Don't you long for that as a follower of Jesus, as a Christian, where shore to shore, all across the created world, there's nobody left in God's creation that's ignoring Jesus. It's crystal clear on that day that he is our Lord. He is our king. Holiness, glory to God, knowledge of the glory of God covering the earth like water covers the sea. We should prepare for the cosmic signs. Number two, we should prepare for the sign of the Son of Man. This is in verse 30. Jesus says, you, you will see the sign of the Son of Man appear in heaven. Almost certainly, this is a reference to the glory cloud that will surround the Lord Jesus on that day when he descends from heaven. If you remember in Acts chapter 1... When the apostles saw him ascend into heaven, the angel said that he, would, that he would reappear, that he would come back in the same way that you saw him go, bodily, visibly, gloriously. The sign of the Son of Man, this has been referred to as the Shekinah glory cloud of God. The, the, that visible manifestation, brilliant, radiant manifestation of the very presence of God will surround Jesus on that day. And not only are we told we should be prepared to see something, the sign of the Son of Man, but also hear something. In verse 31, he says he'll send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And isn't that a curious thing? And God's word says that several times, Thessalonians, Revelation, that on that day there's going to be a trumpet blast. Thessalonians says the voice of an archangel 
There's going to be a trumpet blast on that day. And this will indicate the descent of Jesus. The ascended one will descend. The bodily descent of Jesus Christ. Now when you hear trumpet, I know we have awesome musicians in the room. Don't think symphony. Don't think orchestra. Think army. Okay? Armies. In the ancient world, the blowing of trumpets and the raising of standards is how armies are gathered on the battlefield. Jesus' army is his holy angels. That the ones who are sent out to do his bidding on that day are his created mighty ones. His ministers that go forth and do his word. We're told on that day that that trumpet blast indicates that the gathering of the elect has come from every corner of God's creation. Number three. Prepare for the gathering of the elect from one end of heaven to the other to the other this is the day to use the words of Jesus in a parable this is the day the final day when the wheat is forever separated from the chaff when the saved are forever separated from the lost never to intermingle again the gathering of the elect from the four corners of the earth. Now, what did God promise? All throughout the Bible, beginning in verse in Genesis 12, verse 3, God promised that all the families of the earth would be blessed through the offspring of Abraham, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Promise made, Genesis 12, verse 3, Promise fulfilled on the final day when the elect are finally called, not from one corner of the earth, not from one city, the holy city, but from every corner of this created world. The elect are finally gathered. All the believers of all time, of all nations, are finally gathered into the presence of Jesus Christ. The bride of Christ finally presented to the bridegroom. The Lord Jesus, finally presented without spot, without wrinkle, without blemish, washed with the water of the word. Finally presented to the bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ. The all nations bride granted to the Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, forever, we see him never to be separated from Christ again. The union, the reunion of every believer with their Lord, never to be separated from Jesus again. What an awesome and what a glorious day. What a wise thing to see our Lord prophesy His return and order your whole life. That's what I'm living for. For the rest of my days, maybe I get 50 more years, maybe I get five more days, but that's the day right there I'm living for. Not a thousand more in this world, not 10,000 more in this world. That's the day I want right there, the final day, the day of the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. That awesome day. That day of the fulfillment of every longing for every Christian. The day of the healing of every hurt. For every believer. The day of the righting of every wrong. 
the day of resurrection, raised from the dead, the day of being clothed with immortality, never to taste death ever again, the end of all suffering, the end of all temptation, hallelujah, the end of our sin nature, the end of all the tears that we weep because our Savior wipes them away from our eyes, the end of death, the death of death, the end of all imperfection, what's in front of us? Just eternal bliss in the presence of God. Our heavenly inheritance. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Fully and finally ours forever in Jesus Christ. How has the church responded to these things? What's the right response to these things? We hear about this coming day. And from the very beginning. And this is also among the last words in the Bible. The people of God. Hear that? And this is our response. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. There was a, there's very few Aramaic words that survive usage in the early church, but you can find one at the end of 1 Corinthians that there was this early church phrase. It was this Aramaic phrase. It was part of the liturgy of the early church. And they said, Maranatha. And that just simply means, Our Lord come. In other words, that we can take great joy and encouragement this morning that from the very beginning of the church of Jesus, this announcement has been made and the people of God say, bring it on. Come, Lord Jesus. We want to see you. We want to see you glorified. We want to see you honored in this world. Come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha. Come, Lord. And so let's close our time this morning by praying for that, that God would... Make us awake and ready to see Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you for your word. And we pray, Lord, that you would cause it to bear fruit and edification in your church. Lord, we thank you for the glorious promise that we have on that final day that as Christians we will see a Christ who loves us who saves us, who washes us from our sins with his own blood. Lord, your love overwhelms us, God. And we pray, Lord, that your goodness would be displayed on that day to your people. Lord, cause our heart to rejoice. Lord, we pray that you would make us a people ready, awake, sober. Lord, we pray that you would raise us up as a church with zeal. With love, real love for Jesus Christ, not lukewarm. And we pray, Lord, that you would make us living sacrifices. That lay our whole life down for your honor, for your praise. Make us ready to see you, Lord. God, we pray that you would turn away every other thing that we would crave. The praise of man, the acceptance of this world. We pray that you would crucify those things, Lord, and make us ready to see your face and hear your voice. Lord, we pray that you make us a laboring people, busy doing your will in this world. God, we pray that you would cause your word to rest upon those who don't know you, God, that you, that you would not allow it to be cast away in vain. Lord, we pray that you would pursue the loss with your word. 
that you would convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And we pray, Lord, that you would exalt the beauty of Jesus. Lord, show that all across this room, that there's nothing boring about him. There's, there, there, there's no room for indifference, only for worship. Exalt the Lord Jesus, we pray. Holy Spirit, we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord together.